Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, I know most of you, but I'm still just going to do this. My wife, Kate, and I, and my two daughters, Luna and Soleil, we've been here for about three years. Um, I did that in the first service, but because I'm so committed to the 11, they're like, who is this guy? I've never seen this man in my life. Um, but I know, I know most of you. I'm happy to be here with you guys um, on this Sunday. So I prayed about what to discuss today. And the reason that I was praying about it is because Landon didn't give me a scripture or a topic or any series to build off of. And if I'm being honest, that would have been convenient, you know, to build off of that. But he wanted me to do another standalone teaching, so I began to pray. And I prayed for weeks, and it was just silent. And so I let it lie for a little bit, you know. And then I started to... The date was approaching, and so I started to get more stressed about preparation. I started to pray a little more, uh, exert my own will, start to brainstorm. What should I bring? What should we do? And then on the way to work, it was just very clear to me in bold letters. I saw it, and it was just like suffering. And I was like, dang it. Are you sure? Suffering. So happy new year. Happy new year. Uh, This was not intended to be the first sermon of the new year, you know. uh, We had snow last Sunday, and I'm sure it was a very uplifting message, something encouraging. And that may be today, too. I'm not saying that you won't be encouraged, but that's what we're talking about. So uh, I know why the Lord downloaded this for me, uh, and it's because it's personal to my story as I'm sure it's personal to a lot of our stories, but the, the Reader's Digest is this for me. Um, I met Jesus at the beginning of the worst year of my entire life. And I'm obsessed with testimony. I listen to a lot of testimonies. Uh, if you met Jesus recently, I wanna, I wanna talk to you. Come talk to me after this. But I would, I would hear this narrative in some, not all, where people would give their dialogue about before Christ, right? And then they would get saved, and then they would start talking about their problems as if they were past tense. And I'm like, do they believe what they're saying? And I'm not dogging it. I believe in full deliverance, and I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I think that it's a real thing. But for me, my deliverance was slow and educational and difficult and trudging. If you're, if, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're nodding your head, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, and here, here was my assumption, right? We must be born again. And I used to think that was a really cheesy phrase until I read the Bible and realized it's just a biblical phrase. But being born again requires a death of the old self. But my assumption was that death of the old self was gonna be quick and painless. Right? But that's not, that's not reality. What that death is, is it's slow and it's trudging and it's ongoing. The word even tells us that it's daily. 
Uh, I'm a person in recovery. I'm very open about that. I've struggled with addiction and alcoholism the majority of my adult life. Uh, And I had long-term sobriety. And when I met Jesus, I, I didn't. I was in the middle of relapsing and no one knew and I was bound in dishonesty. So I got saved and I met Jesus in a radical, authentic way. And again, I'm not going to go into too many details because I feel like I'd be repeating myself and it would just take too long. But the next day I woke up with the same consequences of the forgiven sins. Those don't just go away. And I know some of you know this. It's like, yeah, duh, Andrew. I get it. But I think it's something that uh, we need reminders on. Because when people would tell me God has a wonderful plan for your life, what they failed to mention is that wonderful plan includes pain and suffering and difficulty and weirdness. (laughs) So I found it challenging to prepare just a single sermon on suffering, but something You know, something that broad may require an entire series, but today we're going to consider, I think, a a large source of suffering, which is trials and temptation. I know, I know. So I am currently a painter. That's what I do Monday through Friday. But before, uh, for the past seven plus years, I worked as a counselor, specifically in, in trauma therapy, which is why I'm a painter now. So I wanted to share some common ways that I saw folks handle trials and temptations. And as I'm, as I'm reading this list, uh, think about whether or not you've done these things. We compare our trials or temptations to others, both winning and losing. We hide them or overshare them, seeking acceptance from anyone who will listen. We drown them with vices or they are the vices themselves. We convince ourselves our trials are not real or we just overly identify with them. We become obsessed with the world, career, success, things that we can control. We use them for our own self-pity or as fuel for pride. We attempt to hide them from God or we blame him entirely for the trial itself. We find a scapegoat and make them the source of our trials. Or maybe the most disheartening for us, we use our trials and temptations as evidence against the truth of God and deny him access to our lives entirely. And when I read that last thought, I think of a friend of mine who has just been through the ringer this year. And I was talking to him and he kept repeating the same phrase. He kept saying, God is a poor engineer. And it's it's that last thing, right? Evidence against the truth of God that we deny him access. We blame him for these things. That is false. As disciples of Jesus, how we handle these things matter. Because of Jesus' less popular promise, in this world there will be trouble. Trouble is to be expected. We We are to steward our pain well. So we're going to be in James chapter 1 the whole time. Um, You can open your Bibles to James chapter 1 and just stay there. Or uh, open your app, James chapter 1, just stay there. If you don't have either of those things, you can go on Google on your smartphone and just type in James chapter 1 and it will come up. 
So I think it's important that we get into some context with James regarding this topic, uh, and it gives this context within the first verse here. So James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So who is James? James is Jesus's brother, technically half-brother. And it's interesting here, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't say James, Jesus's brother. And he said a servant, some of your Bibles may say bondservant. And what he's doing is he's declaring Jesus's lordship over his life. He could have said brother. James, I like this man. He refused to believe that his brother was the Messiah during his entire earthly ministry. There are separate accounts of his disbelief, both in Gospels of John and Mark. He's a skeptic. So it wasn't until witnessing the resurrection that he came to faith. And then who is this letter to? Who are these 12 tribes scattered among the nations? This letter is addressed to mostly Christian Jews, believing Jews, and some Gentiles who had to leave their homes, jobs, relinquish their property due to persecution. So essentially, they're homeless, they're in unfavorable environments, and without a doubt, under great stress, suffering. So I'm going to walk us through several suggestions that I've gathered from this text. Uh, Let's start with the first. First suggestion of the day. Do not be deceived into thinking trials aren't spiritual experiences. And so when I speak of spiritual experiences, what I mean here is anything that's bringing us closer to God. Anything that's bringing us to the foot of the cross. Let's pick up in verse 2 here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is so clear. I love this book because when I first got saved, I felt like I could go to this and I know exactly what's happening here. I know exactly what he's talking about. So when I read, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, some of your Bibles may say patience instead of perseverance. This speaks to sanctification. What a religious sounding word, sanctification, but what it simply means, and it's, it's something we should desire, it's God working in and through the believer to make them more like Jesus. And when I look back at my own walk with the Lord and others around me, I see that process looks a lot like mistakes confessed and repented over, me falling flat on my face, Truly, just to be greeted by Jesus extending his hand out again and again and again and again. A misconception I had about sanctification, the visual I had in my brain was a ladder up to heaven. But what I now know it is, is we are in the pit and Jesus is extending the ladder down saying, come. This should have a sanctifying effect on us. Another way to describe this is is being set apart for holy use. And we can be set apart for holy use in many ways, right? There's seminary, and there's education, and there's there's priestly uh, advancements, right? But I think what being set apart looks like is trials and difficulties and arising from them and being redeemed. And what this verse tells us is that joy is in the maturing from the trial. 
Jesus is in the beginning, the middle, and the end of our trials. There is no other God that does that. In fact, the word tells us that we are his workmanship. He is working on us, in us, through us right now. Trials prove his glory. I think what James is saying here is that a believer, your trials now take on an entirely new meaning. Remember, like I said in my testimony, my trials didn't alter overnight, but they did take on an entirely new meaning. They did. This is great news. And I also know, I'm very aware of this as I was preparing this, is that there's some trials in your life that have left you saying, God, what is the meaning of this? And no one can answer that. It's my opinion that if someone can answer that for you and say, this is why you're going through this trial, I would be very careful. What this verse does tell us is that more will be revealed and that we can trust. More will be revealed. Uh, James identifies this in verse 12. I don't have a slide for it, so I'll just read it here. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I have a really silly illustration. I went back and forth. Should I do this? Should I not? And I'm just going to do it. Okay. I know a lot of folks in here have witnessed their child learn how to walk. Some of you are currently doing it. And it's the best, right? The family's sitting around and the child gets up and starts to walk and everyone's like, whoa, and they fall and everyone's laughing. It's the best. But imagine for a second that as your child was learning how to walk, walking around the house, that you had a cushion, a pillow, and you were constantly following him around with a pillow. And then every time he would fall, he would laugh and be like, oh, okay, and get back up and keep walking. Again, it's silly, but what, would this, what, what may this do? What's the potential here? One, the child would instinctively learn falling is not that bad. That's okay. That doesn't hurt. And then the worst case scenario, extreme scenario, maybe the child would never learn how to walk at all. Deep down, do you wish God would do that with some of your trials? Is it possible that discomfort is a vital part of being a disciple of Jesus? Is it possible that this is supposed to hurt a little bit? Uh, favorite C.S. Lewis quote. It's bold. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. For the younger people in the room, that's like a sweet wine is what he's talking about. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. So if you're a weirdo like me, this is really encouraging. And the reason, the reason being is because we all know that nothing great has come in our life without discomfort. I was really attracted to New Age practices, Eastern philosophy before coming to Christ. And that's where I kind of lived. And this is my experience. I'm speaking about my experience here. I think the big reason that I was attracted to that is because it required me to do nothing. There was a lot of detachment involved. And this is difficult. This is hard. Why? Because it's worth it. In a big way. 
Uh, let's move on to our second suggestion here. Do not be deceived into thinking that our wisdom is enough. Picking up on verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The gospel has taught me a ginormous truth, and that's I'm a bad manager of my own life. And that's not, that's not to sound self-deprecating, right? It's just, it's just true. My wisdom is not enough. If I'm going to myself as the authority, I'm going to be drawing zeros at best. It tells us in the word that we're a slave to the one we obey. If that's our brain, that's bad. My wisdom is not enough. Our knowledge isn't even enough. Knowledge is just raw information. The wisdom James is talking about here comes from the Lord. And I would love to say that prayer is my first resort to solving a problem, but that would be a lie. It's become a little better, but I almost unconsciously go into fix-it mode. And this goes over terribly uh, with, with in my marriage, perhaps, right? Like the males in the room who are married, you know that listening and asking questions is a really good way to go about handling things. But I want to fix it. I just want to get in there and I want a solution and I want to fix it and not have to, to think about it. And I don't want to ask for help. So I just think that there is this mechanism in all of us that wants so badly not to need help that at times we put prayer off until it seems absolutely necessary. And I love James' wording here. He gives generously without fault. Whether you come to him at the beginning or the middle or the end. Uh, I have a dear friend named Tom and he has repeatedly told me in his raspy East Coast accent, I'm not going to do it. I tried to do it a couple of times and it sounded weird. But he says this, he says, self-reliance is defiance. And I asked him, defiance to who? To which he calmly replied, God. I found some fascinating research regarding this. Um, the coronavirus pandemic, do you guys remember that? It's been a while. But it resulted in a 50% increase in online search terms for the term, how to pray. In March 2020, the number of Google searches regarding prayer surged to the highest level ever recording, surpassing all other major events that otherwise call for prayer, such as Christmas, Easter, and Ramadan. A professor of economics at the University of Copenhagen who led the research found that the amount of prayer searches in March 2020 was 50% higher than the average during February 2020, just a month prior to lockdown mandates. That is revealing. That is revealing. What does it take for us to be knocked out of self-reliance? I know for me, it's a lot of pain, which I wish that the Lord would do something a little different, but for some reason, that's, that's what it is. But a, a goal for all of us is to come to a place that when trials occur, we are not suspicious of God and his plans. Yet he becomes the only place we know where to go. He himself is the refuge. I want to tell a story about my uh, good friend named Dane. I was a part of a house church when I came to faith. We would go house to house every Thursday. There might be some people here who are in that. Boney was. I'll give Boney a shout out. He was there. 
But uh, this was a wonderful thing. We would get together as a group, about 15 to 20 of us. We would pray, we would worship, we would eat, we would get into the word. And one of the leaders of that house church was a man named Dane. And Dane is a, a plain air oil painter. He does landscapes. His work is incredible. And so when we would go to his house, uh, I went to his house for the first time on a Thursday for this service, and it's just covered in beautiful paintings. And there's one right when I walk in that, that caught my eye, and it's huge. I'm seeing it as six by six foot, and it's of this young woman smiling. What I came to find out later on is that painting is of his teenage daughter who took her life just prior, years prior. So I say this because I have this visual in my brain of Dane in front of this painting, palms raised, worshiping. And I'm like, how is that man praising God? How on earth is he seeing Lord as sovereign, as king over his life? And it had me look at my own struggles and think, I have, I have no right. I have no right. That became the only place Dane knew where to go. It's not about finding peace or finding happiness. He himself is the peace. He himself is the refuge. So why would we be suspicious of God's plans? Because we read this Bible and we see how powerful he is. We see that everything was fulfilled perfectly. Yet we become suspicious, and I believe James describes it as our tendency to be double-minded. Third suggestion is do not be deceived by your own double-mindedness. Let's hop in at verse 6 here. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I don't know about you guys, but when I read those verses, I'm thinking, I'm the double-minded one. I'm the unstable one that he's speaking of here. James knows the human condition. He knows that we are a mixture of faith and doubt. As I mentioned, him grappling with his belief while watching Jesus perform miracles in front of his eyes, who knows what was going through? Was he embarrassed? Was he afraid for his family? I mean, he's, he has human emotions, a human condition. And I believe James is trying to invite us to admit to our lower nature here. So the Greek translation of the phrase double-minded is uh, dipsychos. It means a person with two minds or souls or divided interests. And I think if we pay attention to our thought life, we will see two opposing sides. I had an experience with it just 20 minutes ago going through the trusting Jesus practice. Not every thought was about the church or Jesus throughout those 10 minutes that we went through. I was like, ah, oh, what's for lunch? Oh, no, we're in this practice right now. Okay, um, what am I going to say when I get up there? Maybe I should say this, maybe I should say that. Like, the mind runs rampant if we really pay attention. So here's the test. Here's the double-mindedness test. Let's say tomorrow we woke up and decided to take action on every thought that occurred or action on every emotion that arose. 
Would all of our actions be aligned with God's will? No way. Some of them, of course, some of them absolutely would, but a majority of them wouldn't. I mean, I think about my own experience. I wake up and I'm like, it's cold. Uh, the kids aren't going to school today. I'd like to stay in this warm bed. And, and then I go to work and I've had a judgment in my head about this, uh, this maybe this customer. And I think today they're going to, I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to tell them today. And then I go home and I'm like, I don't feel like hanging out. I'm going to go to bed at 6 p.m. because I'm sore, you know? I mean, I could cause serious harm. And I see why the word is telling us we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Why? Because this thing is going. It's going a lot. If we were never double-minded, trust would become a non-issue. Imagine if our vision was this, trust Jesus sometimes in most moments. If you've been going to this church, you know that our perspective is to trust Jesus always, no matter the moment. This is single-mindedness with Christ, and I think it's a wonderful aim. Let's move on to temptation and the, the final suggestion. Suggestion four, do not be deceived by mistaking the source of temptation. Picking up on verse 13 here. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Before I got saved, I would, I would tell my Christian friends, maybe you've heard this one before, I could never believe in a punishing God. And that claim had much more to do with me than it did Christianity. What I found out very quickly is that God does not punish me. I punish me. My sin punishes me. And see, what, what I did is I thought the words test and tempt were the same thing. I thought they were synonymous. But now I know is that reading this book, there is holy trials. There are trials that are set apart that are from God. Temptation and test is two entirely different things. God does not tempt. God has not laid booby traps waiting in anticipation for any of us to fall. Most times, temptation is a consequence of my participation in sin. And when it becomes full grown, it's habitual. And how do we know if it's habitual? It no longer feels like a sin. It just is. And that's scary. When I ran this uh, with the elders last Wednesday, they, they made a good point is that we, we need not mistake temptation for a sin. Temptation is going to be here on this side of eternity. That is not a sin to, to have temptation, but what we do with it matters. How we handle these things matter. Josh White, in his book, Stumbling Toward Eternity, talks about the one-two punch from Satan. Here's how it goes. You get tempted, and you have the thought that comes through. Jesus will forgive me for this. He's done it many times. I even have examples of when he's forgiven me. He loves me unconditionally. And then you fall, and you engage in the sin, you fall to the temptation, and then the thought directly afterwards is this. You piece of crap, Jesus is never gonna forgive you for this. 
the enemy wants us ashamed. And there's a difference between guilt and shame, right? Some of you have heard this, but guilt is sometimes really healthy. I've made a mistake. I've done something wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is I am a mistake. I myself am the mistake. And brothers or sisters, I cannot see something further away from the narrative of our Lord in Scripture. For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Ephesians 6, spiritual warfare is real. I was approached by a man at one point, and and this is how he led. He said, hey, I'd like to get coffee with you and talk to you about the devil. And I said, okay, and I went with it. I knew him. It wasn't just some random dude like, hey. Uh, But I'm very excited about Jesus. I I want to talk to anyone about him. I want to learn about him. And I got coffee with this man, and what he was highlighting for me uh, is that I was falling victim to the, the, the greatest scheme there is of the enemy, and that's to convince us that he isn't one and that he doesn't exist. Amen? We know this. And that's where I was. Months ago, Landon mentioned a very uh, scary prayer, and it stuck with me. I may butcher it because I don't have the transcript of what he said. I just was sitting there listening and He said something like this. He said, Lord, will you illuminate the sins in my life that I'm not aware of? Will you show me my sins that need repentance? And when he said that, I just got this like, oh, no. Because there's always something, right? I mean, I look back. It seems like every couple of the months, the Lord is like, do you look at what you've been doing? You know, I just was thinking about it the other night. Like, I've been holding bitterness for someone, and I was asleep at the wheel. I had no idea. And I was like, dang it. There it is again. So is there an area of life where we are asleep at the wheel? Lord, show us. Let's conclude here with verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is what the Lord thinks of us. This is what God thinks of us. And he is the unchanging, generous, giving Heavenly creator, amen? That's who he is. This is the God that we serve. In 1843, Dr. William Moon of Brighton, England became fully blind at the age of 21 due to scarlet fever. When Dr. Moon was suddenly struck with blindness, he said, Lord, I accept this talent of blindness from you. Help me to use it for your glory so that when you return, you may receive it back with interest. Then God enabled him to invent the moon alphabet for the blind through which thousands of blind people were enabled to read the word of God and thereby come to the glorious saving knowledge of Christ. Recognize the wording here. I thank you for this talent of blindness. 
Can we see our trials as talents? That's him. This is Dr. Moon. We can't talk about trials and temptations without talking about testimony. As you can see, it's, I think it's impossible to do so. And what I feel like the Lord has really put on my heart in, in writing this message is that the Lord has uniquely qualified each and every one of us for his use. And that qualification has looked a lot like trials. It's looked a lot like difficulty. Let us not use these talents in vain. Let us use these talents for his kingdom, for discipleship. When I was looking last night, I was you know, reading this Dr. Moon story and something that I realized was like, oh, this is, this is literally the blind leading the blind, okay? And why that's important is because if we are holding our testimony back, if there is a trial that we are going through and we're not telling anyone, I guarantee you there's someone in the room that has gone through that exact same trial. So church, there's, there's folks in here who need your testimony. There's folks out there who need your testimony. I spoke with a woman at the first service. She came up to me after the sermon. She goes, I came here because someone invited me in, in Walmart. So whoever that was, if you're here uh, and invited uh, a woman that you met at Walmart to come to church, she came. So praise God for that. But the blind leading the blind, for instance, it's no mistake that there's people who come to myself and they say, I can't stay sober, my marriage is in shambles, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to see my kids again, I don't know what to do. And the only reason that they're coming to me asking that isn't because I'm qualified, well at one point I, I was, but the reason they're coming to me and telling me that is because I've told them that I went through those things. And I've given them the opportunity to say, me too. So what I want to convey with this is that we, you are all someone's Dr. Moon. 100%. I urge you to share your testimony boldly, not for you, but for the person hiding from the exact trial you have conquered. Let us edify one another. That's a calling. Revelation 12 says that we overcame him, the enemy, by what? The blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. I wanna pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you that we can gather and we can come into this place and we can know that it is you speaking to us. God, I pray the spirit of boldness over restoration. I ask that we be relinquished from the fear of man, God. I pray, I pray that we are a, a, a testimony-driven church, Lord. Lord, I thank you for what you've done on the cross. I thank you for your example. You make the suffering sufferable. Thank you for saving us, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. 
We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.